when Reggie, after Reggie wraps up the book of Ezekiel, uh, it's been on my heart for a long time, actually. Uh, in fact, earlier this year, um, I had mentioned about always wanting to do a teaching on the history of the Bible. And uh, as it turns out, I'm, I'm, I'm really on track with that. And what I mean is, is I've been doing a lot of preparing and sort of, I, I have a, to be honest with you, it's what I was just telling Reggie, it's one of those situations where I actually have data overload. I have so much data that I've sort of compiled over the years. And so right now what I'm doing is I'm taking the time to sort of sift through it and figure out what I want to use and how I want to go about teaching on this subject. Now, I haven't figured out a creative title yet. We're going to be talking about the history of the Bible, and it's going to include a variety of different things, you know, archaeology, manuscript evidence, that kind of a thing. But so history of the Bible is the only thing that I can think of to call it right now. I have to admit, anybody ever listen to John Corson? Or There's some guys that always come up with these really great creative titles for their sermons. I never know how they do it. Mine are like bland. Mine just says, you know, uh, teaching from John. That, that's, that's about as creative as I can get. And I know some guys just, they have these snappy little titles. So I don't have a snappy little title for it yet. Um, but I'm hoping that it, uh, I might think of something a little more creative than the history of the Bible. But who knows? But anyway, that, that's my intention when we're done with Ezekiel. I'm really looking forward to it. I've been wanting to do it for such a long time, and I hopefully it will bring great edification to the flock and, and give a lot of us um, very, very important information that we need about the Bible and just how awesome the Bible is, how great the Word of God is. Amen? So just want to let you know that is still my intention. Amen. Looking forward to it. Excited about it. Hey, I have one announcement before we get into it, too. I, I've talked about this on Sunday, but not much on Wednesday night. So at the jail, I have a young man that I've been ministering to now for several months. His name is John. And John is going to be in prison for a very, very long time. He's doing life. Uh, I may have mentioned it. But as we've been, as we've been studying together and, and praying together, uh, something is kind of crept into the light about John. John looks like he is a Muslim. He's not a Muslim, but he looks, and people assume he's a Muslim because he's growing a beard, and he has an olive complexion, and so they assume he is. And, you know, in jail, the Islamic community is just flourishing, okay, because they come in there and they just sort of try to take over in there. Anyway, long and short of it is, he has been, he has had a heart for the Islamic community in reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to ask you guys to do is two things. One, pray for John. Now, God has given him untold wisdom in that he is learning scripture, he's learning the Bible, with limited resources, and I just noticed that he just, he just, when we sit and talk and we go through the word 
And he'll say, Reggie, is this, is, am I correct in how this is to understand this? And I'm like, wow, man, how many commentaries do you have? He's like, none, you know. So God has given him some great wisdom in there and using him. And he's in turn has, has been reaching out to the Muslims that are in there in the cells that are next to him. Now, John will be going at any moment. They'll be whisking him away to prison. I don't know when. He doesn't know when. Um, I could go there on Friday when I normally go see him, and he could be gone. But I want you guys to pray for John and pray for material. I will, when he leaves, I will find out where he's at, and I will be a source for him to try to get material to him as much as I can. But um, uh, I don't want to get him anything now because anything he gets now, he can't, he'll be able to take with him, but it will just be in his property. He won't have access to it. You can't take stuff from one jail or one prison to another and have access to it. You'll have it in your property. So I want to wait. So pray for him and pray that there will be resources for him specifically on converting Muslims to the gospel. Okay, name is John. Pretty easy to remember. Amen? Let's get into, let's get into Ezekiel for tonight. Let's bow our hearts one more time and pray, and let's get into our study. Father God, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the worship service and the song and the great the, uh, scripture that uh, Johnny uh, shared at the beginning and at the end, Lord, and we just thank you Lord, for your very presence in our life, Lord. We thank you for your word. We look forward to the, the, the time we'll be spending um, after Ezekiel, Lord, studying your word and, and the history of the Bible and uh, all that we'll learn, Lord. We want to draw closer to you, Lord. That's the reason that we've come, to get to know you better and to just bask in your word, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would give us a hunger, an unquenchable thirst, Lord, for your word that we would uh, draw closer to you each and every day. And so, Father, help us tonight, Lord, to properly understand. Lord, use me. Help me to rightly divide your word. Bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we have been going through these last nine uh, chapters of Ezekiel, one can only be amazed uh, about, about the detail and particulars that are given throughout these last nine chapters. Now, to me, this is a strong, one of the strongest and most irrefutable arguments against taking these chapters in a, in a uh, symbolic or allegorical sense. If what is happening here is not real, then why so many details? So we are in Ezekiel 45, beginning at verse 1. And when you, when you divide by lot the land for inheritance, you shall offer an allotment to the Lord, a holy portion of the land. The length shall be the length of 25,000 cubits, and the width shall be 20,000 cubits, and it shall be holy within all its boundaries around about. Out of these there shall be for the holy place a square around about 500 by 500 cubits, and 50 cubits for its open space round about. From this area you shall measure a length of 25,000 cubits and a width of 10,000 cubits, and in it shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be the holy portion of the land. It shall be for the priests, the ministry of the sanctuary, the ministers of the sanctuary, who come near to minister to the Lord. And it shall be a place for their houses 
and a holy place for the sanctuary. An area 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in width shall be for the Levites, the ministers of the house, and for their possession, possessions cities to dwell in. So in these first five verses, we have the holy district. The holy district is described. It's the land allotted to the priests and those who minister in this future temple. So up here is a, is a uh, diagram of what's going on here and what I've just read. So it, traces, it tracks a land of 20, 25,000 cubits by 10,000 cubits. So we see that's up there and 10,000 right here. Okay, so if a Babylon cubit is 21 inches, this land is 8.3 miles by 3.3 by 3 miles, or 27 square miles. It's a pretty large piece of land. He also says within that area, there's a plot about one mile square, 500 by 500 rods, equal to six cubits or 21 inches. This plot was for the temple courts. This is the same area we measured last week when we talked about 42, chapter 42. So you see, you see the priestly areas, the temple, there'll be farmland for the people. So we have the priests up here and then the Levites down here. Okay. We're going to talk about this land over here, the prince and the prince's land um, area to the east and to the west. Verse 6, you shall give cities of possessions of an area 5,000 cubits wide and 25 cubits long alongside the allotment of the holy portion. Um, holy portion. It shall be for the whole house of Israel. The prince shall have land on either side of the holy allotment and the portion of the city adjacent to the holy allotment and the property of the city on the west side toward the west and on the east side towards the east in length, in length in comparison to one of the portions from the west borders to the east borders. This shall be his land for a possession in Israel. So my princes shall no longer oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. Thus says the Lord God, Enough, you princes of Israel, put away violence and destruction and practice justice and righteousness. Stop, stop your expiration from my people and declares the Lord God. You shall have just balances and a just ephah and a just bath. So once again, this is another diagram just showing the layout. I jumped too far ahead, sorry. Showing the, uh, and this is a better diagram showing what's going on here that we just talked about. So as I said, Levitico, this is the city district here. The holy district is right here. And then this is the, the land for the prince to the east and to the west, okay? Um, and then verse 8 tells us why the Lord gave the, the prince this land and this land over here, all right? He said, my prince shall no more oppress my people. God was tired of the royal family using, using eminent domain to confiscate people's property. So he gave them their own plot and reserved the rest for the tribes, okay? 
So back in Ezekiel's day, of course, a king could just confiscate somebody's land if it was so desired. And so God said, we're done with that. This is going to be your land. Everything's going to be just as I've laid it out, and that's going to be the end of it. You have your land and no more. He moves on to tell them that they should have accurate weights and measure. Now, God cares greatly about the simple and honest integrity among men. Scales and every measure should be right and fair. If we look at Leviticus chapter 19, uh, verse 35 to 36, it reads, You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurements of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances and just weights, a just ephah and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. Proverbs 11.1 1 reads, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And there are many more scriptures that talk about this specific subject. So it's funny that this is such a minor thing, and yet there's nothing minor with God. He cares about the weights and measures that are going on that they're using to be just and fair to everyone. Moving on to the verse 11. The ephah and the bath shall be the same quantity so that the batch will contain a tenth of a homer and the ephah a tenth of a homer. Their standard shall be according to the homer. The shekel shall be 20 giras, 20 shekels, 25 shekels, 15 shekels shall be your uh, mena, mena. This is the offering that you shall offer it. A sixth of an ephah from a homer of wheat, a sixth, a sixth of an ephah from a homer of barley, and the prescribed portion of oil, namely the bath of oil, a tenth of a bath from each core, which is the tenth baths or a homer, for ten baths are a homer, and one sheet from each flock of two hundred from the watering places of Israel for a grain offering and for a burnt offering for a peace offering to make atonement for them, declares the Lord God. Now, you've got to look at this and say, okay, that's a lot of information. It's just about weights and measure. Why is, why is that there? Well, it's obviously that God thought it was important. He, he wanted his people to be fair and honest about what they were doing and dealing with each other. But here the Lord is speaking to the princes and he's telling them that they are to serve the people with honesty and justice. They are to have fair work ethics. You see, they're representing the prince, the Lord. And that's something that we need to take to heart. When we're out in the world and we are representing the Lord, when we deal with the world, or even with um, our own brothers and sisters, we should be fair and honest with them. That should be the case with all of us. We know that with every Christian, that's not necessarily the case. If, you're, if some of you are avid John Corson listeners, um, John Corson early, uh, when they were small or smaller, not small, but smaller, I remember him preaching a message about, on this subject, and he was talking about the, the honesty of the Christian worker out in the world. And he was talking about how often his church would have employers calling his office 
asking if there were any people in his church who needed a job. Because in his community, they had such a reputation for being straightforward and honest. All the employees, their worth ethic was great, showing up on time, doing their, putting in a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. And so it got so to the point that he had to assign somebody to take these phone calls and sort of a church, uh, church ministry of, of, of employment. To, if there was somebody in the church who needed a job, they would go to this minister or who was over this ministry and then reach out to the community because their reputation was so good. That's the way it should be in the entire Christian community. People should long for a Christian. When they find out a person is a Christian coming to work for them, they should be excited and overjoyed knowing what kind of a worker they're going to get. We think now today, sometimes it might not be so. A person may say they're a Christian, they may even advertise as a Christian company, but their work ethic doesn't demonstrate it. We have to get back to that. But that shows, that shows the importance of why God put this in the scriptures. Okay? That needs to carry on even today. Amen? Amen. Verse 16. All the people of the land shall give to this offering for the priests in Israel. And it shall be the priest's part to provide the burnt offering, the grain offering, the drink offering at the feast on the new moons and on the Sabbaths at the appointed feast of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering to make atonement for the house of Israel. So they are to, they are to make atonement. These rituals, as we know, of atonements were commemorative of the completed and finished work of Christ for sin through the sacrifice of himself. They are in no way effective for the removal of sin at this time. That's done with, okay? So these are memorial activities, right? They were picture lessons and reminders to the people of their Messiah's marvelous saving work. What praise and worship they would give to the Lord for his gracious provisions for the forgiveness of sin as they reviewed these sacrifices as reminders of what Christ had done for them. So, once again, we remember that, that the, the work on the cross was a done deal. It was finished. So these sacrifices are simply memorials on what, was, what has already taken place. Verse 18. Thus says the Lord God, In the first month, on the first of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood from the sin offering and put it on the doorpost of the house on the four corners of the ledges of the altar and on the posts of the gate of the inner court. Thus you shall do on the seventh day of the, on, of the month for everyone who goes astray or is naive, so you shall make atonement for the house. So when it's talking about being naive, it's talking about unintentional sins. But here we see the cleansing of the temple and the ceremonial cleansing of the people during the millennial kingdom. Twice a year, a sacred ceremony of cleansing the sanctuary was to be performed on the first day of the, of the month and on the, seventh, uh, on the first day of the seventh month. 
verse 21. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. On that day, the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. During the seven days of the feast, he shall provide a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams, without blemish, on every day of the seven days, and a male goat daily for a sin offering. He shall provide as a grain offering an ephah with a bull, and an ephah with a ram, and a hen of oil with an ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, at the feast, he shall provide like this seven days for the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the grain offering, and the oil. So among the feasts celebrated, Ezekiel's future temple will be the Passover. God's redemption of Israel from Egypt and his great redemption through the work of Jesus on the cross will always be remembered. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was connected with the Passover and would also be celebrated. Now the, the uh, bulls and the rams and everything that was bought for the, for the ceremony was provided by the prince. But in the earlier verses where we saw where the people were given specific measurements of what they were supposed to bring, it was for this specific purpose so that the prince would have what he needed to have the sacrifices. So everybody was involved in it. Everyone was involved in it. In the Old Testament of Solomon, the sacrifice was two bulls, one ram, and seven lambs, if we remember. But in the future temple, the priests offer seven bulls and seven rams. What's missing? The lambs. Perhaps, perhaps, everyone will know that the Lamb of God has already been slain. Perhaps that's the reason why there's no lamb involved in this one. Now, as we move on to... As we move on to chapter 46, once again, we see one of the reasons that some believe that the prince can't be Jesus, but that it's David or a descendant of David. So we come back to that controversy, which we talked about last week, where is there a division. Some believe that this, this prince is Jesus, and some believe it's David or a descendant of David. Okay. So let's take a look at it. 46, verse 1. Thus says the Lord God, The gate of the inner court facing the east shall be shut six working days, but it shall be open on the seventh day and open on the day of the new moon. So in other words, it's Chick-fil-A only backwards. <laughs> the prince, I thought you liked that, Sarah. The prince shall enter by way of the porch of the gate from the outside and stand by the post of the gate. Then the priest shall provide his burnt offering and his peace offering, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate and then go out. But the gate shall not be shut until the evening. The people of the land shall also worship at the doorway of the gate before the Lord on the Sabbath and on the new moon. The burnt offering which the priest shall offer to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and with a ram without blemish. And the grain offering shall be an ephah with a ram 
and the grain offering with the lambs as much as he is able to give, and a hen of oil with the ephah. On the day of the new moon, he shall offer a young bull without blemish, also six lambs and a ram, which, he, which shall be without blemish. And he shall provide a grain offering, an ephah with the bull, and an ephah with the ram, and with the lamb, as much as he is able, and a hen of oil with the ephah. When the prince enters, he shall go in by way of the porch of the gate and go out by the same way. So at Ezekiel's future temple, the gateway to the inner court will only be open on the Sabbath and on special new moon festivals. Chick-fil-A doesn't open on new moon festivals, does it, Sarah? Okay, okay. Just, I didn't know. I wasn't sure. We see here the prince go in and out of the temple the same way. He doesn't use another gate but he uses the east gate, which we talked about last week. He will enter and leave the temple area from that exact same gate. But only the prince will be able to do this. So this brings us back to the question of the identity of the prince. Last week we learned that only God could enter and exit through that east gate. So is the prince Jesus? Or is it David? Well, if the prince is Jesus, then this all makes perfect sense. As I mentioned last week, I believe that the sacrificial offerings in the Millennial Temple are all commemorative or memorials. The Millennial Temple will reveal what the former temple concealed. The Old Testament sacrifices look forward to Jesus's sacrifices. These sacrifices will look backwards to all that Jesus has done for us. Listen to this interesting comment by Charles Feinberg. Notice here that legal, legalizers and seven-day observers advocate always fail, advocates always fail to realize that the Sabbath consisted in more than just abstaining from labor on the seventh day of the week. And as important as that was for the commandment, but included also specific sacrifices to be offered by an authorized priest in a designated place of God's choosing. It is folly and worse to take one part of the observance and wholly disregard or discharge another. Just as in previous expressions of the temple in Jerusalem, Ezekiel's temple would be a place of worship for all the people of the land, not only the priests. It says the burnt offering that the priests offered to the Lord. Ezekiel describes some of the specific sacrifices and offerings the priests would be commissioned to perform on behalf uh, of the people. Verse 9. But when the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feast, he who enters by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by way of the south gate, and he who enters by way of the south gate shall go out by way of the north gate. No one shall return by the way, the, by the way of the gate by which he entered, but shall go, out, go straight out. Notice here that if people entered by the north gate, they were to leave by, through the south gate, and if they entered through the south gate, they were to leave by the north gate. 
There would be an established flow of traffic for the people of the land as they came to worship at Ezekiel's future temple. There's no entrance to the temple on the west, and of course we know that the east gate would be permanently shut, for it was for the Lord. We know that our God is a God of order. He wants orderliness to prevail in worship. One commentator wrote concerning this passage, Ezekiel's vision of hundreds of thousands of people thronging the temple courts before God on the prescribed festival days would have been a logistical nightmare, which this ordinance sought to manage. So can you imagine all the people thronging the temple trying to come and worship and everybody just going helter-skelter wherever they wanted to go? But by having this ordinance there, if you came in through the south, you had to go out through the north and vice versa. It kept things orderly in an orderly fashion. Again, we come back to details, 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 even how people entered and exited the temple. Why? Why so many minute details here? For something that's fictional? Verse 10. When they go in, the prince shall go in among them. And when they go out, he shall go out. At the festivals and the appointed feasts, the grain offering shall be an ephah with a bull and an ephah with a ram and with the lambs as much as one is able to give and a hand of oil with an ephah. So the prince shall be in the midst. God's appointed ruler for Israel in the millennium will be a leader truly among the people. He will be in their midst. He'll go out with them and come in with them. Continuing on, verse 12. When the prince provides a free will offering, a burnt offering, or a peace offering as a free will offering to the Lord, the gate facing the east shall be opened for him, and he shall provide his burnt offering and his peace offering as he does on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go out, and the gate shall be shut after he goes out. And you shall provide a lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering to the Lord daily, morning by morning, you shall provide it. Also, you shall provide a grain offering with its morning by morning a sixth of an ephah, a third of a hand of oil to moisten the fine flour, a grain offering to the Lord continually by a perpetual ordinance. Thus shall shall provide the lamb, the grain offering, and the oil morning by morning for continual burnt offering. So if the priest, I'm sorry, if the prince desires to make a free will offering of a burnt offering for a consecration or a fellowship offering of thanksgiving, the east gate was to be opened specifically for this act of worship and then closed when it was finished. Again, this this gate was reserved for him. It says that he shall go out, and after he goes out, the gate will be shut. Each specific detail gives more and more evidence that this is meant for some literal fulfillment. The details are meaningless in a merely spiritualized fulfillment. We may not be able to understand what each individual detail means or how it will be fully be fulfilled, but we can trust that it will be fulfilled. 
in my opinion. In Ezekiel's future temple, there would be daily offerings to remember and memorialize the perfect work of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Morgan wrote this, In this day of restoration, the ceremonial offerings are observed with this difference that until Christ came, they were pathetic and anticipatory, whereas now they are memorial. The custom of the daily offering would be continued through the entire period of the future millennium. Now we take a look at the year of Jubilee. And again, we come back to the question, who is the prince? Verse 16. Thus says the Lord God, if the prince gives a gift out of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons, and it is their possession by inheritance. But, he gives a gift, but if he gives a gift from his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his until the year of liberty. Then it shall return to the prince. His inheritance shall be only his sons. It shall belong to them. The prince shall not take from the people's inheritance, thrusting them out of their possession. He shall give his son's inheritance from his own possession so that, they, that, so that my people will not be scattered, anyone from his possession. So if the prince will give part of his estate to one of his sons, it belongs to his sons forever. Property given to a family member will not be returned in the year of Jubilee. And we all remember what the year of Jubilee is, right? However, a gift made to a servant will not be permanent. The servant may keep the land um, until the year of freedom, and then it reverts back to the prince because the land will belong to God, and he will portion it to Israel as his steward. This regulation assures that no one individual will gain permanent control of the land. The prince will not be allowed to claim any land outside his own allotted inheritance. In contrast with the evil princes in Ezekiel's day, as we talked about, the princes during the millennial time will not oppress the people or take their property. But one of the first things we notice in this section of scripture is that the prince has what? Sons. So if the prince is Jesus, how can he have sons? Don't see anything, Anna. Let's take a look at a couple of things that some of you already figured out last week. It's funny, Anna Anderson came up to me and she had figured this all out. First of all, we are told in Romans 8, 13 through 14, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the spirit, you, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We have been adopted. So we have been adopted into the family of God. We are sons of God. Also, we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, Therefore, come out from among them and be separated, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, 
and you shall be my, what? Sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So once again, we are called sons. One more. In 1 John 3, beginning at verse 1, we are told, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when, we, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we are sons of God, according to the word of God. Think about it. Galatians 4, um, chapter 4, verse 1 reads, Now I say as long as there, I'm sorry, now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elements, elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time had came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as his sons. Because you are sons, God has set forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. And we can go on and look at uh, John chapter 1, Hosea chapter 1, Revelations chapter 21, that go on and talk about us being sons of God. So I thought this would make a very interesting homework assignment. Read through and study for yourselves. And let me know what you come up with. What do you believe? Is it Prince Jesus? Or is it David? Or some representative of the Lord? I'm going to be looking for a 300-page essay from each of you <laughs> next Wednesday. Verse 19. Then he brought me through the east entrance, which was at the side of the gate, into the holy chambers of the priests, which is faced north. And behold, there was a place at the extreme rear toward the west. He said to me, this is the place where the priest shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering and where they shall bake the grain offering in order that they may not bring them out into the outer court to transmit holiness to the people. Ezekiel's... Uh, Angelic guide led him to the kitchens in the temple complex. If you remember the slideshow from last week, we saw where the kitchens were. The, the kitchens were for the priests, are to be at the west end of the um, priest's chambers adjacent to the temple property. There the priests will cook the guilt offering and the sin offering to avoid bringing them out into the court. The priest will be allowed to eat a portion of the sacrifice brought to the temple. Excuse me. Verse 21. Then he brought me out into the outer court and led me across the four corners of the court. And behold, in every court of the court, there was a small court. And in the four corners of the court, there were enclosed courts 
Don't you just love King the Bible when it goes like this? They were 40 cubits long and 30 cubits wide. These four in the corners were the same size. There was a row of masonry around about in them, around the four of them, and boiling places where they made, were made under the rows round about. Then he said to me, these are the boiling places where the ministers of the house shall boil the sacrifice of the people. So in the outer court, each of the corners were the kitchens for the sacrifices of the people. This was a time where people, the, the, the everyday people got to go and worship and fellowship with each other. And it was, it was it's kind of supposed to be a wonderful and joyous time where God is glorified through all of this. Taylor wrote this concerning this piece of scripture. So the temple was a place for sacrificing, cooking, and eating, as well as for prayer and, and so-called spiritual activities. The Christian church has been the poor when it has drawn a firm dividing line between spiritual life and social activity. In Ezekiel's temple, at any rate, there was conceived a healthy fusion of the two, of the two elements, and this was typical of much in Old Testament worship. And I would say here at Calvary Chapel, we, we have that going on here. On Sunday, we come to praise and worship and pray and glorify our Lord. And at the end of the service, we go downstairs and enjoy fellowship with one another. And you guys know as well, one of the things that I'm very proud of and I brag about when I talk to people about our church is two and a half hours, sometimes three hours, we're, st we're still here. People are still sitting downstairs talking and fellowshipping. The kids are playing. There are times where you'll see people sneak off into one of the side rooms to counsel, to pray together, just to vent, okay? But we have a healthy time of, of, of where we meet together as brothers and sisters, as the body of Christ, and we can do those things. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a very good thing that we have that going on. But then we carry it outside of these doors. And we meet together for dinner or for an activity, our children's birthdays or uh, whatever's going on. And most of the time, most of the time, when you look around at that activity, whether it's here or especially when it's outside of the church, it's the same people. It's the body of Christ. It made people from here, Front Royal, another church, but it's the body that's coming together. Charles Freeberg, in ending chapter 46, wrote this. Whenever man desires the fall of man has seen absolutely no need for a priest or intermediary between him and God. But if the word of God teaches any truth, it is the crying need for all men for a priest. God has already pointed out his priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Through him, we all have access, access to God. And I say amen to that.
Hopefully, maybe next week we'll finish up Ezekiel. But I got to tell you, this has been such an exciting experience for me. And I wouldn't have traded for anything in the world. I've learned so much, not only about Ezekiel and what goes on there, but I, I think that it has, you can take it all and make it relevant to our lives. It's not just been some obscure teaching, you know. And so I'm grateful. And I'm grateful for you guys, and I hope that you have learned something through this time together. Amen? Let's all stand. Like I said, Lord willing, we will close out the book of Ezekiel next week. But you know how that goes. I may go off on a tangent or something. Dave warned me two weeks ago, and I told him two weeks ago I was going to finish Ezekiel. He said, yeah, I don't think so. Then Johnny came up and said, yeah, you're not going to finish. And I'm glad. I'm glad I'm enjoying it. Father, thank you, Lord for every opportunity we have, Lord, to come and spend time in your presence and spend time in your word, Lord. What an awesome thing. What a better thing to do on a Wednesday night, Lord, to come and be refreshed, to be energized, Lord, by your word. To learn something new that we didn't know about you through your word. So exciting. Father, I ask your blessing upon my brothers and sisters. Lord, I want to... Don't want to forget to pray for Paul and Ricky and Sandy, uh, Wilkes and Poland, Lord, that your healing hand would be upon them. Thank you for this night. In Jesus' name, amen.